All right, today, if you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and while you're turning there, um, I've titled the message, Taking Time to Consider What's Important. And um, I will have to confess, as I was looking at this passage, there were certain aspects of it I would just like to skip. And I think the reason I wanted to skip it is because it was stepping on my toes. <laughs> and I trust it will step on your toes uh, as well. And we really consider what's important. Let's just begin reading down through. And I'm not going to get as far as I originally thought I was, but that's okay because uh, we've got another Sunday uh, unless the Lord returns uh, to do this. So beginning in chapter 3, Philippians, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The question I have at the outset is, what do people value who do not know Christ? What is most important to them? It has been said we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Many people do not know the difference between the value of being righteous as opposed to being just religious. Many people equate righteous and religious as synonymous, but the Bible does not. The Bible says the righteous will live by faith, whereas the religious will live by his flesh. The power of Christ will give strength to the righteous, while the power of self will give fuel to the flesh. Being righteous means not only being right morally, but being in a right relationship with God. A person who has confessed their sin to God, they've asked God to forgive them of their sin, they have turned away from their sin in repentance and have put their faith and trust in God. A righteous man or woman is at peace with God and has the peace of God. The righteous man or woman has been justified by God, which means he or she has been declared righteous by God because they've been, they have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. 
Here's how Paul says it in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our justification, our right standing, being declared righteous is because we have called upon the name of the Lord, we've recognized our sin, we've humbled ourselves, and in grace we've received the gift of salvation. He says in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I share this with us because I think there are a lot of people who believe that they have a relationship with God, when in reality they have a relationship with religion. And they lack a relationship, a genuine relationship with God. And I think the longer we live as Christians, the more dangerous it becomes that we can become religious and lose the relationship. And I think Paul is alluding to this very thing in this passage. He starts off the passage saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He talks about the value of rejoicing in the Lord. This is not easy to do when we're going through hard times, though, is it? And so here's what he says, rejoice in the Lord, not my circumstances. There's a big difference. You see, a religious person will not rejoice in the Lord when they're facing difficult circumstances. But a righteous person will. The righteous person remembers that God is sovereign over his circumstances and will use those circumstances to deepen his faith. Now we know this has probably been the most difficult year for our farmers, the absolute most difficult. And now you're telling me that I'm supposed to rejoice in this? No, I'm not telling you to rejoice in that. I'm telling you to rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances. Because your circumstances are not good right now. Any given time, our circumstances can be absolutely horrible. That's not what we rejoice in. We rejoice in the Lord. That's why James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In Nehemiah 8.10, it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, think about who's saying this. Paul is writing this from a Roman prison, (laughs) telling people to rejoice. He is not in a good situation. His circumstances are not good. His life is hanging in the balance. I'm sure it was discouraging, depressing. He probably felt distance from God. But yet in the midst of all of his difficulty and discouragement, people were coming to Christ. We see that in the very end of the book. He says, greet all those who are in Caesar's household. People were giving their lives to Christ. But yet Paul is 800 miles from Philippi. It's a fledgling church who has relational struggles in the church, who has theological struggles in the church, and Paul's heart is tugged toward that church. He's 800 miles away. He wants to be with them, so he says, tells them to rejoice in the Lord. 
No matter what you're going through, rejoice in the Lord. Paul is not only a picture of patience and perseverance, but he displays an attitude of joy even though he's under house arrest. And in this section of Paul's letter of encouragement to the Philippians, he encourages them to rejoice in the Lord and not our circumstances. So let me ask you another question. What attributes of God become more precious to you in difficulty? What attributes of God just shine because of your difficulty? For instance, when's the last time you thank God for His wisdom? Because He's used those circumstances to humble you. And in the midst of that humility, it was because of God's wisdom that those circumstances are there to humble you, to keep you in a right relationship with the Lord. When's the last time you thank God for His grace in sustaining you in that difficult situation? How about thanking God for His Spirit to encourage me when I get discouraged? The Spirit of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God, those are things we thank the Lord for. And when we begin to thank the Lord for those attributes, rejoicing comes out. There's a sense of joy. Well, Paul moves on from this joy to trouble in the church. He said, it is no trouble, though, for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Here we see the patience and perseverance of Paul once again. He says, I'm not burdened to do this for you, because I want you to grow in your faith. And he gives them a threefold warning by telling them to be alert to the danger of false teachers, to beware, to have their spiritual antenna up, to detect the errant teachings of these Judaizers who have come. So there's not only the value of rejoicing in the Lord, but there's the value of knowing the truth. And so by having a value of knowing the truth, we can see the danger of false teachers. And he gives three warnings regarding these false teachers. Number one, he says they are destructive, they are dogs. Dogs was a very derogatory, contemptible term in biblical times. Paul used this term to refer to Jews because of their false teaching. The Jews used it of the Gentiles. They would call Gentiles dogs because they weren't Jewish. Paul turns around and calls them dogs because of their teaching. See, Paul was relating their teaching to ravenous dogs that can be very destructive. Ravenous dogs would roam the streets. They would have no master. And he's projecting a visual image of the damage that false teachers can bring to a group of people who are not theologically grounded. These dogs, mangy, flea-bitten, vicious, starved scavengers, roaming the streets who are unclean, are contemptible. They're shameless. They were guilty of perverting the truth. They were bold and sassy. They were also deceptive. In a moral sense, they were wicked. They were vicious. They were bad in heart, conduct, and character. But they were proud of their religious accomplishments as they performed good works to somehow attain salvation. In reality, their good works did not impress God. 
Their lives became a stumbling block to genuine faith and hindered the gospel. So Paul continues to describe their character about their passionate activities. He goes on and he says, watch out for these dogs, those men who do evil. And then what do they do? He said, those mutilators of the flesh. They are also, oh, there was supposed to be another one. They are determined, determined, mutilators. Circumcision was the first requirement of the law that was used to identify a person as being God's people. They took great pride in fulfilling this mandate. Circumcision alone, though, did not lead a person to genuine faith in Christ. He missed the value of true Christianity. If you look down in verse 19, he explains again about these false teachers. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame and their mind is on earthly things. When we, understand, we don't consider what's important when our mind is on earthly things. When we're spewing out false teaching and false ideas about how we can have a relationship with God. And there are many people, many people have this false concept of a relationship with God because they attend church. And they do these good things. And they say, well, I've got a relationship with God. Do you have a relationship with God? Was there a time in your life where you repented of your sin and you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Or do you have a faith that only belongs to mom and dad? Or grandma and grandpa? Was there a time where you were humbled and convicted of your sin and embraced Christ? Well, let's look at the distinction of true Christians. We're going to look at this a little bit further. He goes on in verse 3, and Paul says, It is we who are the circumcision, the true circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So here's the distinction of true Christians. Not worried about circumcision, which is external, All the external things, attending church and doing all those things. No, these people do more than just attend church. He says they are directed in their worship by the Spirit of God. Their worship is there because they've had a change of heart. They've had a spiritual circumcision of the heart. They worship and serve God not of compulsion, but because they're a new creation. They're excited to come through the doors and hear the Word of God preached, to sing the songs. When you sing the songs, is it more than just lyrics? Does it touch your heart when you sing those songs? It should. Is your heart stirred about God and Christ and His person, His attributes, His worth and His work? When you sing, you are truly worshiping the Lord, not just showing up. Do you pray as a family over your offering what you're giving to God? That would be a great exercise to do. Pray as a family over your offering to God, what you're giving to God, that it's an act of worship you're giving to the Lord and that God would use it to expand His kingdom. Do you praise the Lord for His greatness, expressing reverence in your prayers? You see... It is directed 
by the Spirit of God. It's not just going through the motions. A religious person will show up, get their card punched. Hey, I was in church. I did the songs. I did the message. I did. I did. And it's just a religion of works. And their heart is not in it. And the Bible warns about that where we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from God. The second thing they do, the reality of those who have true Christianity is they boast about the work of Christ. Notice what he says here. It is we who worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus. We boast about the work of Christ. We magnify and exalt the Lord rather than ourselves and our own good works. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. And then he says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. To boast is to give an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something. We praise God for his sacrifice on the cross. Because apart from the cross, we are only religious people. Apart from the gospel, we are only religious people. And religious people are contemptible to the Lord. Do you see why I wanted to pass up this sermon? (laughs) The third thing is, and this hits all of us, I think, between the eyes. I know it hit me. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Somehow it's skipping over. There we go. They do not trust their flesh. Why? Because our flesh has a sin nature. They had no confidence in the flesh. They did not depend on or rely on or put their faith in the flesh. That's what God tells us we should not do. Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why? Because our sin nature is controlling us, and that sin nature wants nothing to do with God. It's contrary to God and lives in rebellion to God. Well, then Paul goes on, and he talks about the description of misplaced values. Remember, we asked the question, what do people value who do not know the Lord? What is most important to them? Well, we're going to see right here what's most important to people who do not value a relationship with God. Paul thought he had one, but he didn't. And here's what he says in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Talk about pride. (laughs) And then he gives his whole list, his whole resume of all the good things and the good person that he is. And he holds it up before God and says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He gives, first of all, his ancestry. He was raised to follow the law. He was circumcised the eighth day, which every Jew who was born into a Jewish family on the eighth day, they would be circumcised one week after their birthday. 
They'd be circumcised. Why? To be in a right relationship with God. Paul was putting all of his stock on this external act. And I'm concerned about how many people perform external acts, but their heart is far from the Lord. He goes on to say he was set apart from the Gentiles. He said he was of the people of Israel, so he was set apart from the Gentiles. He was of the people of Israel. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, his heritage. This is the oldest ethnic name for a Jew or the Jewish people. Paul did not want to associate with the Hellenists. He also maybe was bragging that he could read the scriptures in Hebrew. He came from a loyal tribe of the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that would remain loyal to David and which formed with Judah the foundation for the restored nation after the captives. So he has this ancestry and he's like, I am right with God because I was born into the right home. I have the right connections. Maybe you were born into a Christian home. Teenager, young person, your mom and dad love the Lord. That doesn't mean you know the Lord. That doesn't mean you have a right relationship with God. Have you accepted Christ as your own personal Savior? He goes on then and he talks about his achievements as well. He followed the typical path of a Jewish boy and a Jewish adult. He sought to fulfill the law. In regard to the law, he said he was a Pharisee. The first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, they would study it over and over. A Pharisee was one of the parties with Judaism during the late Second Temple period. They were noted for their exact observance of the Jewish religion. They were very accurate and exact in their exposition of the law. They handed down extra-biblical customs and traditions. They believed in the coming resurrection and angels. There were over 600 commandments. And they lived them to a T and they watched and made sure everybody would follow them to a T. And I can't help but think and see the idea of Pharisee in my own life. Perhaps you see it in yours. And then he went on and he says he persecuted the church, Christians. He carried this out with zeal. It was common in the first century for Jewish men to measure their commitment to God and the nation of Israel by how much they opposed foreign religion and rule. He radically opposed Christianity and he sought to destroy it by force. Seventhly, he was blameless in regard to the law. Blameless. He lived it to a T. But that's what he was putting all his stock in in his relationship with God. It was all the external things, everything he did, the family he was born into, his race, his rank, his religion. He was putting all of his stock in that. And he lacked a relationship with God. What do people value who do not know Christ? What is most important to them? Well, we just saw it here in this passage, what was most important to Paul, who did not know Christ. What was it? His own righteousness. That's what he put his stock in. That's what was most important to him, is his self-righteousness. 
He believed that he was okay with God because he was a self-righteous man. Paul says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about the Israelites. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and this is where many people are in our world, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God, and so they seek to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And many people say, I'm going to enter heaven because of all the good things I've done. The family I was born into, I'll get there. They seek to establish their own righteousness. And I think it's something that we can all be guilty of. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, Jesus tells a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's interesting how this story starts off. Here's what it says. He told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Self-righteousness. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The Pharisee went to the temple to pray and he stood up and he prayed about himself. He magnified his self-righteousness, all the good things he was doing. He practiced the spiritual discipline of fasting and giving money to the church. And he seemingly had no sin to confess to God. He looked like a spiritual giant to those around him. He was going to the temple to pray after all. What an admirable thing to do. Let me ask again this question. What do people value who do not know Christ, they value their self-righteousness. What is most important to them? Their self-righteousness. But it gets couched in actually not those terms, and that's why we miss it. It gets couched in terms like this, significance. They want to be significant. The Pharisee wanted to be significant. He attempted to get his significance from his image. And when people looked at him, he wanted them to look at him and say, that's a good man. (laughs) He wanted other people's opinions about him to be good. He wanted people to speak well of him. And he projected this image not just of significance, but also of great spiritual success. He wanted people to believe he had the golden ticket, as it were, That he had complete fulfillment in what he was doing. We see this same idea captivating the actions and attitude of the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. God blessed the ground so that it produced a good crop so much that he ran out of grain bins. He needed to build more. He tore down his old ones. He built bigger ones. And he said to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. We want significance. We want success. We want self-advancement. 
Self-advancement. We see this in the news all the time, don't we? We learned about the college scandal recently of parents who wanted to have self-advancement of their kids by attending certain schools. We see this in the Scripture when Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver so he could advance himself. We see this with Ananias and Sapphira when they bring their offering after they sold a piece of property. They bring their offering to the church. They wanted to look significant. They wanted success. They wanted self-advancement, so they hold back part of the price, but they're going to look good. Self-righteousness. In even Genesis 11.4, after the flood, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to be famous. You know, there was a survey done by a team of researchers at Harvard Graduate School of Education. They asked 10,000 middle and high school students the following question, what is most important to you? Do you know what came back? Achieving at a high level. Happiness. 48% of the students selected high achievement as their top priority. 30% chose happiness. The youth made it quite clear that their self-interest is paramount. If you're not happy, they said, life is nothing. That was their answer. There was another survey done in 2012, and it revealed an alarming decline in Americans' confidence in many traditional sources of values, including government, family, celebrities, leaders, and even faith in God. But according to the poll, they said, we still have confidence in one thing, ourselves. That is, we believe in our own ability to get what we want through sheer hard work or moral effort. Confidence in our own abilities has not declined. 70% of Americans believe that with hard work, I can accomplish anything. And many people turn that into the spiritual and say, I can get to heaven myself. Like I said, it's not a message I really wanted to bring, but this is what's in the text. It's what so many people... And why would Paul write this to a young church? Why would he do that? Why would it be given to a church that's been around? Because we all have the tendency to try to do the work of God in the flesh. Apart from the Spirit of God. And when we do that, we will fail. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. So what do people value who do not know Christ? What is most important to them? Self-righteousness. Significance. Success. Self-advancement. But what does Paul do when he gets down to verse 7? We'll talk about this more next week, but you see a transition. He uses that little word, but. But, Paul says, in light of all of this, I had all this confidence in the flesh. I had all of this going for me. And when I stop and look at it and I stop and consider and think about really what is important in life, 
Whatever was to my profit, whatever I saw in that column that seemed like it was a credit is not a credit. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. His whole value system was turned upside down. Because what he thought was important was not important. And when people practice self-righteousness, that's what they think is the most important thing in life. But really what's most important is to know Jesus Christ. And he says, I consider loss for what? For the sake of Christ. What an attitude. What a reversal to say, no, I've come to the end of all of this, and all of this is a heap of garbage, rubbish. The word is excrement. That's what it means. It's filth compared to knowing Christ. That's what God desires for all of us when we realize what is really, really important in life. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me ask you, what is important to you? Are your values misplaced? Are you really taking time to consider what's important? And as you rub shoulders with people in the marketplace, say, well, they're a good person. But what is that good person valuing? What do people value who do not know Christ? What is most important to them? We should be looking and considering that in their lives and considering how can I connect with them to tell them what is the most important, valuable thing in life. If it is the most important, valuable thing in my life, I have to share it. If it's not, I don't. Self-righteousness will send a person to hell. So it's wrong to tell them and not tell them what self-righteousness will do. Is it religion or is it a relationship? Paul had religion for a long time. He thought he had a relationship, but he had religion. And then he came in Acts chapter 9, which we can look at next week, and he had a a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And when he had that personal encounter with Jesus Christ, his self-righteousness dissipated. He said, I need to know this Christ. I need his righteousness, not mine, in my life. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.